Praise the Lord. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 12 this evening, we'll get right into the text. Uh, the way that these Proverbs are written is it's just as one after the other, after the other, after the other. And uh, after, after I get done teaching through these types of Proverbs where you have a different subject every verse, it really feels like you've run a marathon. Uh, because it's not like a normal uh, text where you're building up to a main theme. It's kind of like hitting you with one main theme after the next, after the next. So I want to get rolling here. Chapter 12, verse 1. It's very familiar to what we've already discovered. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> Emphasis added, <laughs> being mine. This is probably one of those verses I would have liked to memorize had I known it was in the Bible before I became a Christian. Um, just because it says the word stupid, I think that's interesting. But familiar between uh, the one who loves instruction and knowledge and the one who hates correction. Of course, the, the use of the word stupid here, uh, one translator I saw, he called it ignoramus. I thought that was another good word that you could use. The idea is... When you, when you refuse to receive correction, ultimately the correction of the Lord, uh, you lack the ability to discern, and this is what separates man from animals. So you lack the ability to discern, which is really something that God has given us as human beings created after his image. We have the ability to discern between, let's say, good and evil. Animals don't have that ability to discern. And so when we refuse correction, if you will, we are becoming, in a sense, like animals. Uh, and you could say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 22, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you, speaking to the Lord. <laughs> so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Can you think of your life before Christ and maybe how that was true? How when you go into sin, it just it strips you of your humanity. Uh, and it causes us to do things that we never thought we would do in our right mind. And I think the question is, how do we get there to where you become like an animal? Uh, and I think the answer is, if we fail to heed the Lord's counsel, we cease to measure ourselves by His standard. But make no mistake, we will find some type of standard to measure ourselves by. Usually it starts with ourselves. We become the standard, the gold standard, where we judge everyone else by ourselves. But it doesn't stop there. The author, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1, shows us this downward spiral when we refuse the correction of the Lord. And he shows us that, that ultimately man changes the glory of the incorruptible God for what? An image made like corruptible man. But it doesn't stop with man, does it? It goes down to birds, then four-footed animals, and finally those creeping things. So there is this descent that takes place when we refuse the correction of the Lord is that we think that we're gaining our independence from God and in the end we become like creeping things. We worship creeping things and when you study say Egypt they used to worship the dung beetle and, and, and that's about as low as you can get and so uh, either you'll receive the correction or you won't but he who hates correction is stupid. Just wanted to say that one last time. Um, Verse 2, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. Uh, Psalm 1.5 says, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. 
See, the, the reality is there is coming a day of judgment, right? And we've talked a little bit about this in Proverbs. Uh, remember, when you, if you can recall John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, do you remember some of the descriptors that John describes Jesus as, as he beholds the resurrected and ascended Son of God? Remember his hair, his face, it was white like snow, speaking of the absolute purity of Jesus Christ. We see his eyes are like a flame of fire. And that, of course, would be warmth to those who love him, but to those who are being judged by him, his eyes of fire are able to see through everything, and nothing is hidden from his sight. We also see that his feet are like fine brass, and brass being a symbol, no doubt, of judgment in Scripture. And so, no doubt, the Lord sees all, he knows all, he therefore judges all. Even the wicked intentions of the human heart will be laid bare before him and exposed for all to see. And we see from this there is only one root that will not wither away on that day of judgment. And that is the root of the righteous, those who put their faith and trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And only his righteousness will stand on that day. And those who are wicked will be ultimately judged by him. So we see here a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions, he will condemn. The Lord will condemn. And a man is not established by wickedness, right? Wickedness, though it only lasts a certain amount of time and it will be judged. There is an end to that, but praise the Lord for the root of the righteous cannot be moved. Isn't that good news? And it's not about our righteousness, right? It's about the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's not going to be moved on that day. Verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. You know, the, the impact of a wife we see here towards her husband cannot be overstated. Isn't that true, guys? The impact of a wife, whether it be good or bad, uh, she has a big sway over her husband. And the reality is, what a man has in his home, he brings with him to the outside world. That's what the text is going to show us here uh, this evening. There's this contrast between the excellent wife that we see at the first part of the verse and the wife who causes shame. Now, the excellent wife is said to be the crown of her husband. She's excellent. She's virtuous. We're going to see the virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, and why? Because her relationship with the Lord that leads to godly character improves her husband's inner and outer worlds. See, the godly wife, she impacts her husband inside the house, inside the family, inside the realm of their uh, togetherness as a family, but then he takes that out with him, whether it be good or bad. He wears her, the excellent woman, as a crown. Think of a crown. That's something that everyone is able to see and behold. It's a public thing that a king would wear. And so she is his crown. She is the outward symbol for all to see. She enables him to be successful in his endeavors. And perhaps you've heard the famous saying, behind every great man, there is a great woman. I can say that's true. My wife's not trying to look at me right now. <laughs> but I cannot begin to tell you the blessing of having my wife. Uh, what she does in, in our house and, you know, tending to the kids and homeschooling and, and everything that a mother and a wife does enables me personally to, to be free for the ministry. 
And I think about how would my life be different if I married someone who was not ministry-minded? I wouldn't be in ministry. That's kind of the point. And, and not, not just for ministry, when whatever happens to a man, the wife that he marries has such an impact uh, on the husband. Now we see the contrast here between the excellent wife and the one who causes shame, right? You see the contrast there. And notice it's outward shame. She, she becomes inward rottenness in his bones, as we'll see later in Proverbs, one drip at a time, right? Drip, drip, drip. Drip. And so this rottenness to the bones. This woman derails her husband's outward success and creates poison within him that eats his bones from the inside out. And all can see it, only furthering the man's inner pain and suffering. Because as the man leaves the house, he carries her with him. And she, he brings this rottenness with, with him wherever he goes. And when other people see this, it reminds him of what he has back home waiting for him. And it's this cycle of ongoing difficulty that Solomon is painting for us. Uh, I remember my mother, before I was married, before I met my wife, uh, I was in college and she took me aside, knowing that, of course, I was looking for that perfect someone. And she said, Luke, you know, it's better to be alone than to be with the wrong person. You ever have someone tell you that? And at the time, as a teenage boy, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> and not just as a, a teenager, but it, maybe you've, you've talked to someone who is single and lonely. And isn't it true that loneliness can breed des uh, someone becoming desperate and making very, very poor choices? It could be a husband or a wife. It doesn't have to be just the wife here. This, is, this really goes two ways. But the reality is, I've learned that that's so true, that, that marriage can be a blessing or it can be a curse if you choose the wrong choice. And looking back, isn't it true, those of you who are married or have been married, it's, it's almost, it's, I can't begin to say the impact of that choice for good or for bad. And I see that more and more and more now as, as I get older, how important it is, that person that we choose to marry. Women, you have a large influence on your husband and his legacy. And I, I think as a, as a wife, those of you who are married or those of you who aspire to marry, uh, you have a decision to make. Are you going to be like Sarah, who was so supportive of Abraham and so supportive of his call, even when Abraham blew it, right? Because we see in Scripture, I love that. He wasn't perfect. He blew it several times. In fact, many times she was at the center of him blowing it because she was so pretty. But she stuck by him. She was faithful to him. So you can be a Sarah or you can be Job's wife. Think about Job's wife and her legacy. The only thing we know of her is, what did she say? Curse God and die. And that's what we know of Job's wife. I'm, I don't know that... <laughs> That doesn't sum up her whole life, but to me, that's all we know about her, right? And so Job's wife gave him horrible advice that only further festered this lamenting that Job was going through. So, ladies, let's be excellent wives. Husbands, let's also be excellent husbands. Uh, we're we're going to have a lot for husbands as we go through Proverbs, so won't stick on that point. So verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are, lie in wait for blood, 
but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Now, if you were to dissect these three verses, verses 5 uh, through 7, you will see a three-linked chain here. Because in verse 5, we see that thoughts lead to, in verse 6, words, which lead to actions and destinies in verse 7. Do you see that three-linked chain there? Uh, as you look at those things, the thoughts lead to words, which lead to, ultimately, actions and destinies. Uh, and that's why in Proverbs later, he'll say, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Uh, it's why when we become believers in Jesus Christ, what does God do? He begins to transform us. How? What does he want to renew? The mind. He renews our mind. That's how he transforms our life. And so we see the thoughts of man are seeds that bear eternal fruit. And your thoughts lead you into an eternal direction. Either life or death. Reward or judgment. Heaven or hell. And that's why we need repentance. Isn't that what we talked about on Sunday? Repentance a change in the way that we think, right? A change of direction. We need a change of mind. It's, it's why we desire that our thoughts line up with the Lord's and his thoughts. In fact, do you realize when we, even when we confess sin, because we realize we blow it, when we confess sin, that, just, that word confess just means to speak the same. So when we confess our sin to the Lord as believers, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, you say this is wrong. And I am confessing the same as what you say. And so I'm agreeing with you that what I have done is contrary to your nature, to your word, and to what I want to be as your son or your daughter. And what we're doing is we're aligning our hearts and our minds with the mind of Christ when we confess our sin to the Lord. It's restoring that relationship, that fellowship with him, that when we sin, we get off course, we get off track. And so think of those things. Thoughts leads to words, which leads to actions and destinies. So important, your thought life. And isn't it true that's where temptation always begins? That's where the enemy comes knocking at the door of your mind, whispering lies or half-truths. And so in verse 7, we see the outcome of this. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Notice that he talks about the house here. And so your thoughts don't just impact you, they impact your whole family, your whole household. And just as the woman impacts her husband, so our thoughts impact our whole household. Think about Cornelius in the New Testament or the Philippian jailer. These were men who feared God and men who turned to the Lord. And what happened to their households when they turned to the Lord? Their households followed them and their households believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the flip side of that, think of the kings of Israel that are recorded in Kings and Chronicles. One wicked king after another wicked king after another wicked king. And sometimes it seemed like they kept getting worse and worse and worse and more idolatrous and more idolatrous and more idolatrous. And so this is something that passes down. Our thoughts follow us and they follow us and our whole families. Because why? Because they lead to words which lead to actions and destinies. And so what I'm thinking, I, I pour out to my boys. And they hear those words coming out of my mouth, good or bad. And I'm sowing seeds in them. It's kind of like when you hear your kids say something and you're like, where do they pick that up, right? 
And then you realize, wait a minute, that's what I say. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Sponges. Sometimes not for the better, right? Verse 8. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Now, this may not take place until the Lord's judgment, right? Because there are people who are incredibly wise who are hated by the world. But we know that when we read God's word, we always see it through the eternal perspective, God's perspective. And this is the final outcome, whether it be here on this side or later. Uh, verse 9. Better is one who is slighted but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. Okay, That word slighted means to be lightly esteemed. And it speaks of the way that you are seen by others. Okay, We're talking about perception right now. And so it's better to have people look down on you uh, with your needs being met than to put up a show before others receiving their praise, but then you lack the basic necessities like bread. Bread here is a basic necessity. Uh, I can think of this personally, uh, knowing some folks uh, who put up a great show. We, we, have, uh, we know a lot of folks who are from the Dominican Republic, obviously, my wife being from there. And so you'll see people coming to America and you know they're, they're doing their thing here in America and they really have nothing many times. Uh, to show for it. But then they go back down to the Dominican Republic and they're decked out going down there and they make it seem like they are wealthy and you know they have everything together and they're, they're putting on this show to try to impress people with what they've become here in America. And, and it's such a danger of trying to put on a show for other people, the, the power of public opinion. Uh, here the person lives in poverty, and yet he tries to make himself look like he's something before people. He doesn't even have bread to eat. Compared to the person who maybe has, uh, people don't think very highly of him, but he has what he needs. Um, again, this person is slave to public opinion to the detriment of self. And he can't get past societal expectations. Isn't that true today in this day and age? You think of certain people who maybe pursue a, a certain type of career. And in order to get into this career, you have to go to a certain type of school. Or your kids have to go to a certain type of school. You have to drive a certain type of car. You have to have a certain you know, posh bank account. You have to live in a certain kind of house. Wear certain kinds of clothing. And people are enslaved by that mentality. And people are constantly trying to go up the ladder, step by step by step, getting to this, whatever it is, this pinnacle that they think in their mind, if I just get this, this is where I'm going to be satisfied. Of course, the saddest part is when people reach the pinnacle and realize it doesn't satisfy, right? But this, this thing of public opinion, I mean, doesn't that drive us? When you think of your years in school, let's say high school, were you driven by people's opinion of you? I know I was. I cared so much about what my peers thought of me. It drove almost every decision that I made. The kind of music I listened to, the kind of movie that I would watch. I would in my back of my head always be thinking, you know, <laughs> I want to make sure that people think highly of me, right? I remember being in the car, in fact, this is really funny, um, when the Lord was really working on me and I wasn't saved at the time and I remember I got a third day worship CD. And I, I, it was Offerings, I think, one of their first worship CDs. And I remember in my car, I would listen to it on the down low. But any time that I thought that someone might join me, I'd get that CD and I'd hide it somewhere. You know, I didn't want someone to know that I was listening to Christian music. How stupid. 
And yet you think of how the sway of public opinion is. It's a mirage. But isn't it true that the gospel frees us of this? Because the gospel says God declares you righteous not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. So the gospel frees us from this work-based mentality of trying to earn people's approval. Or people who maybe, I see this a lot in the men that I've ministered to. They didn't have a father growing up. And so what do they do? They look for approval somewhere, usually in the wrong place. And so looking for that approval, they, they search for it and they find it, but they find it in the negative places and they end up enslaved by the people that they're looking that affirmation from. And yet the gospel says, your father loves you. Your heavenly father loves you. Not because of what you've done. You can never earn it. But many times I see people who don't have that father in their life. And what do they do when it comes to their relationship with the Lord? They go back to trying to earn his favor. And being trying to please him in their own strength so often. It's a danger of a fatherless generation of trying to earn his favor. No, what do we just praise the Lord for? The cross, it's finished. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, praise the Lord. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. His love is perfect as your heavenly father. And so we don't have to be enslaved by the opinions of the world. Praise the Lord for that. And listen to this, as society goes further away from biblical values, following God's ways as opposed, to, as opposed to worldly expectations will make one seem more and more weird. Okay, Think of a woman in our day and age. A woman is expected to find her value by her education and her career today in many places. So in our case, when you tell someone that, yeah, my wife is a homemaker, do you know how many stares you get today? <coughs> When you say that my wife is a homemaker or we homeschool, people look like you're an alien. Like, what do you do? And so I believe as, as our society, its values get different from biblical values, I believe we as Christians are going to stand out all the more because we're going to be a peculiar group of people. We're going to do things very different from the world. But you know what the beautiful thing of that is? We're going to be free. So praise the Lord, whether you work or whether you're at home, we're free. Serve the Lord wherever you're at. And don't allow other people's expectations of you to dictate what you do, who you think you are, and what you want to be. Let the Lord Jesus Christ dictate those things. Because he wants good for you. He wants blessing for us. And that's what Solomon is getting at here. Verse 10. A righteous man regards the life of his animal... But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Really interesting use of language here, right? The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Uh, the principle I think that he's pointing out here is the lesser to the greater, right? If you're faithful with a little bit, then you will be faithful with a lot. If you're cruel to the lesser, okay? If you're cruel to the animal, what does that mean you'll probably do to people? You're probably going to be cruel to people as well. Uh, remember, we're told in Scripture not to muzzle an ox as he treads out the grain. Now, what do we learn in the New Testament? Is God ultimately concerned about the ox? Well, he is concerned about the ox. Don't misunderstand that. He does care about his creation. But the ultimate concern is for man. And he shows us that that's an analogy to take care of those who are, who are ultimately uh, supplying grain for you. Uh, so the, the New Testament main concern is the human laborer. 
But again, if you don't treat the ox right, you certainly won't treat the human right. And I, I, I really, uh, observing this, having dogs pretty much my whole life, I've observed this to be very true, that dogs have this certain kind of sense of people. I remember we had a golden retriever, and she was the sweetest dog in the world. I mean, you would just baby talk her, and she'd pee herself. She was such a big baby. Uh, she was not a watchdog by any means. Um, but I'll never forget, there was a guy who came to our house once. He was a worker, group of construction workers. And she was fine, except for this one guy. She just, you know. And there was something that she sensed about that man. I don't know what it was. You know, I've seen animals. They have the sense that we don't sometimes. But I do believe that they sense when people maybe have that hatred in their heart towards animals or people. I think there's spiritual things going on as well. But uh, nevertheless, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and by the way, he, he actually was uh, killed in, in uh, Nazi Germany. He, was, um, he came here to the States for a while and then he went back. But he said this, he said, The bad deeds of a good person are better than the good deeds of the wicked. I thought that was interesting, especially coming from someone who experienced wickedness probably to a greater extent than most of us have. The bad deeds of a good person are better than the good deeds of the wicked. Verse 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. That word uh, frivolity also be translated vain things. And I think the idea here is that there's always been get-rich-quick schemes. It's not something new. It's not an American invention. There's always been people trying to make money fast and quick and, and at, at cutting corners uh, at all costs. But when you work with their hands, there's value to that. You're satisfied with that bread. Verse 12. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Now, there's different ways to view this. There's different ways to translate the Hebrew of this verse, which makes it a little bit tricky. Um, I think the most likely understanding of this is that the wicked are always in search of security. And they look for it outwardly. Why? Because they lack it inwardly. And so they have no peace. And so many people and many wicked people are extremely paranoid because they can't trust anybody. And so they look for ways to protect themselves, even from other evil people or through evil means. But in contrast to the wicked person whose conscience condemns them, who has no peace, who's always looking somehow to protect themselves, you have the righteous person who has peace because they have the life of God in them. They have the spirit of Christ residing in them. Therefore, the root of the righteous yields fruit, meaning good fruit. Uh, and so there's, a, again, a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And it all begins within the heart. Verse 13, the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. So the wicked are again caught in their own traps. And, and you know, in this life, they may catch the righteous. And the wicked do kill the righteous in this life, right? We, we see this at the cross. That the righteous do die at the hands of the wicked. But we also see from the cross that righteousness will prevail, right? That's the evidence of the resurrection, that even though it may seem that wickedness get, has its day, its day is coming to an end. And the cross is evidence that righteousness will prevail. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead. He triumphed over death, over sin, over the enemy. Verse 14. 
A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. Again, the Lord will have the final word. Very familiar theme all throughout Proverbs 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Very similar way of saying the same thing we've talked about time and time again. The fool does what is right in his own eyes. Maybe he's been counseled to follow your heart. Anyone ever tell you that? Follow your heart. You watch a lot of movies, especially mushy-gushy movies or Disney movies. In those movies so often, what's the counsel given to the person? Just follow your heart, wherever your heart leads you. I know, that, that's a terrifying thought when I look at my own heart. <laughs> Where would you be if you followed the dictates of your heart wherever it led you? Even as a believer, right? As we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, it terrifies me to where the heart could take us. Now, here's the catch, though. Individual fools, because here we see the fool is right in his own eyes. Individual fools, when they're encouraged, become a society. And everyone, therefore, does what is right in his own eyes. We know that's the implication in Judges, at the end of Judges, right? Everyone in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because it says there was no king. There was no authority. God was not the authority of their life. There was no king over them. And therefore, what did everyone do? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, it, and couldn't this be really said of America philosophy today? I mean, individualism that runs rampant in our country today. The subjective values of whatever's right for you is what's right, you know? There's no absolutes except for there are no absolutes, which is an absolute statement and it contradicts itself. But the bottom line is that when people do what's right in their own eyes, this is the way of a fool. And again, the individual sets the tone not just for themselves, for their household that we've seen tonight. And the household sets the tone for the neighborhood, the neighborhood, the city, the city, the state, the state, the country. And it's a multiplication effect that takes place. Um, we are seeing the fragmentation of America as we see it because of individualism. Uh, I remember seeing a study, this was done by a professor of Columbia University, and he was looking at uh, American history and, and the things that people valued and what kept the country glued together. And he was, uh, he was not a believer, he was not a Christian, I think he was a, uh, an agnostic Jewish man who wrote this book. And he was going through the different phases of our country and he said the first couple hundred years there was a belief in God that caused everyone to basically uh, gather together and do what they did in a manner that was really beneficial for others. He then said the second phase of America was doing what was best for country. Where country, in a sense, became, came into the place of God, as he observed it. But he said the final phase, since the 1950s or 60s, self has replaced country and God. And so now you have a country that is basically, everyone's lit out for themselves. And you see that. You see that just practically. Think of family reunions 20, 30 years ago compared to what they are today in most families. Nothing compared to that. And everyone's just concerned about themselves. And we're seeing this disintegration of American society because of what? The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But the contrast, he who heeds counsel is wise. Verse 16. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. And so the fool here 
shows us his relationship to his emotions. And the wrath comes from the inner irritations and is released, right? They are known by this uh, at once as well. There's no filter. They are simply ruled by their emotions and ultimately ruled by other people and other situations. So if I cannot handle my anger or my wrath, my outbursts of wrath, I'm really letting people control me at the end of the day. I'm letting people use me like a puppet. And I've seen people do that, right? They know they can push someone's buttons, so what do they do? They push the buttons, and they know what's going to come out when you push the buttons. it's, It's a control thing many times. But the prudent man here covers shame. He does not need to react, even though the other person may deserve it. He is in total and utter control. And you may say, well, what's the difference between these two people besides the fact that one's led by emotion and the other is not? I believe the critical answer is the difference is one's understanding of the Lord. See, the fool does not see God in the picture at all. And therefore, he relies on himself. And and he must therefore take matters into his own hands because there is no, again, God in his worldview. And, And he may say that he believes in the Lord, But his actions show that in his practical worldview, he's relying on himself and not the Lord. But the prudent and wise person understands that the Lord is in control. And those of us who've struggled with anger, isn't it a freeing experience to realize that the Lord's able to fight our battles for us? (laughs) I don't have to fight these battles anymore. I don't have to act like a tough guy anymore with a chip on his shoulder. Because I have a Lord who, the Word of God says, what vengeance is mine? I will repay, says the Lord. And it's, again, a freeing thing. Do you see the theme here that God wants us to be free? He wants there to be freedom in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. He wants us to be free to experience joy and peace and all the good things. Because the person who has that wrath, there's no peace there. It's just turmoil. And then that person goes to sleep at night, and guess what? Playing, replaying, playing, replaying. I see that person again. I should have done this. I'm going to do this. You know, a slave, a slave to emotion. I'll never forget early in my walk with the Lord, um, experiencing this firsthand. I I remember it was a rainy day, and uh, I'd been walking with the Lord maybe two years. I was on campus at Penn State, and it's pouring down rain, and I'm on my way after class back to my apartment. And I'm walking there just minding my own business. I think I had headphones on listening to Christian music. And this car drives past me. And they just kind of veered and they, they hit a mud puddle. And the water came up and splashed me, right? Which, you know, not a very pleasant thing. But then, I, as, I, as I look up and it's pouring down rain, I see the people in the car looking back and laughing at me, right? Now here's what was totally amazing to me at this moment. Normally, just being honest, <laughs> my response would have been choice words, number one. And number two, I probably would have tried to pick up a rock and thrown it at him. <laughs> but I'll never forget the peace of God that just came over me at that moment. And it was just a special peace, I think, that God was giving me to show me that he was renewing this mind. He was changing me from the inside out. And it was just one of those big God moments of realizing, wow, Lord, you are at work in my life because this is not how I normally would have responded to this situation. Verse 17. He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness, meaning he speaks deceit. So the scene here is actually a courtroom. 
And we have two witnesses. We have a true witness and a false witness. The true witness, what does he speak? Truth. The false witness, he speaks lies. And in the text, it implies he speaks it purposefully. He's not like, oops, I lied in the courtroom. No, this is a deliberate lie that he's saying. And what comes out of the mouth, therefore, pertains to one's character. And their witness affects others, doesn't it? Because if you're a witness on a trial, the words that you speak don't just affect you. These affect someone's life. This could be a matter of life and death. Now, the question is, what is the incentive to speak truth in a courtroom? Yes, you may have the fear of getting caught if you lie. But for our country's history, typically the incentive was this, wasn't it? Because you would put your hand upon this book and promise that you were going to speak the truth. You would raise your hand and declare to the Lord that you were going to speak forth truth. Well, we're seeing this change in our country, aren't we? And what happens is when you take away this, you take away the inner incentive to speak truth. Which, guess what? It doesn't just affect you, does it? Now, all of a sudden, this person who has not that inner desire to honor someone else besides themselves, now he's in it for himself. And that's why you see witnesses today, what do they do? They just tell whatever's most convenient for them. And we're seeing this erosion of truth in our society because it goes back to this. It's not just about taking the Bible out of schools. <laughs> we're seeing it also taken out of the courtroom. We're seeing it taken out of people's hearts. That's the real big issue, right? Because you can have all the Bibles in the world externally. But if we don't have that fear of the Lord that we started at in the book of Proverbs, remember the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you take away the fear of the Lord, and again, you have people who will do anything to benefit themselves at the expense of whoever comes into their path. And that's what we see every night as we turn on the news. We have, we've, we're left with a crooked system with crooked players. But, you know, I am thankful that we have a God who entered that crooked system, didn't we? Because he faced the most unjust trial we've ever seen in the history of mankind. The only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth was tried guilty for something that he didn't do. And so we serve a God who understands injustice, who came to this broken system to redeem us. That is the great news of Jesus Christ. Verse, 20, verse 18. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The truthful lips shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Again, similar theme we've seen. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Similar thing here, right? The inner, inner peace that God gives us when we do what's right and speak what's right. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. And finally, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And so we see in verse 18 a similar theme. Life and death are in the tongue, right? Uh, we see this all throughout Scripture. James talks a lot about that. Verse 22, though, we see the end of it all, which is again the Lord, right? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Even though the person who's speaking lies is in darkness and in deceit, the Lord is light. And even though there's no darkness in him, he sees those things, doesn't he? Because we can't hide from him in the darkness as much as we may try. And therefore, lying lips are an abomination to him. He sees it all. 
but those who deal truthfully are his delight. And this is why wickedness is but for a moment, right? Because truth is eternal. Because God is eternal. His nature is truth. He is truth. He is true. And therefore, truth will always endure to the end. But wickedness only has a, a certain point where truth will prevail. Because truth will prevail, right, on the day of judgment. Every lie will be untold. Everything in darkness will be exposed by light. And nothing will be hidden before him. And so he wins. Isn't that good news, though? As much as darkness may face us on a daily basis in our personal life, you go to work and you see darkness everywhere. You turn on the TV, there's darkness everywhere. You go to the gym, there's darkness everywhere. There's your family, there's darkness everywhere. Jesus Christ will prevail. And it's good news for us that darkness only has its say for so long. Wickedness only lasts for so long. Lying only lasts for so long. The truth will always prevail because the Lord will prevail at the end of the day. Verse 23 a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. I like this, what Harry Ironside said. He said, the man who has the least worth saying is generally the man who says the most. The man who has the least worth saying is generally the man who says the most. And so a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness wherever they go. 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The idea here is those who cannot rule themselves will ultimately serve others. So if you cannot be self-motivated to work hard, you will therefore end up being forced to work for people who maybe don't treat you as well as uh, if you worked yourself and worked hard, left to yourself. Verse 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. You know, there is a real, we've already talked about anger. But there's a real strong correlation between anger, anxiety, and depression. And the thread that runs through those three things is the feeling of being out of control. Because when you're anxious, there's something that you can't control in your life. When you're depressed, things aren't going the way that you want them to in this situation here. When you're angry... Again, you couldn't do something in that situation. All of them stem from the feeling of feeling out of control. And again, it goes back to, do you have the fear of the Lord? Who is in control. And because he's in control, again, he wants to set us free from those emotions. Not that the emotions are wrong or bad, but when we let them dictate our life. And so here we see this good word that makes the heart glad. And that's a word from the Lord reminding someone that he is in control. He is on the throne. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. Verse 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. And that speaks of really an inspection here, right? You should choose your friends. You should interview them. Those of you men who have daughters, right? You're going to interview that man who wants to take her out on a date. You're going to interview him to the uttermost and make sure that he's right for your daughter. And for the way of the wicked leads them astray. And so how important those, we have a couple young ones here this, this evening. Choose your friends wisely, guys. Choose your friends wisely because you become like the people that you hang out with. And so see what they do. See what comes out of their mouth. Is that something that your mommy and your daddy would approve of? 
And if not, run away from those people. God will give you people in your life who will be good influences for you. And let your parents help you in making those choices, as hard as that may be. Verse 27. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. So here's a picture of a guy who obviously caught something and he's too lazy to cook it. (laughs) I guess that's pretty lazy. And finally, verse 28. In the way of righteousness is life. And its pathway, there is no death. And you know, I couldn't think but close tonight with a better quote than this. This is Jesus himself speaking. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks us a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, that we serve a Lord who is the resurrection and the life? And in Jesus Christ, we can answer verse 28 and say, In the way of righteousness is life, and its pathway there is no death because of our Lord and who he is and what he's done for us. Isn't that good news? Let's close on that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the good news that you give us. Lord, as we go through these Proverbs in chapter 12, again, we we see that you desire good for us. You are wise. And you understand how we get trapped so easily in and of ourselves. How when we begin to allow the world to revolve around us, Lord, it, it, it consumes us, it constricts us, it chokes us, Lord. And we destroy ourselves and then we take other people down with us, Father, left to ourselves, God. We, we want to be good witnesses for you, Lord. We want to be good husbands and fathers and neighbors, Lord, and, and children, Lord. We want to influence our families for you, our households, our neighborhoods, this city, Father. We desire what you have for us here through your word, the wisdom that you give us, Lord. Father, our hearts sometimes are so proud. And we hate correction by nature. But Lord, would you give us that humility of spirit to receive when your word conflicts with what we want, with what we want to do, who we want to be, where we want to go. I pray that your spirit would allow our hearts to be sensitive, to hear your voice, and to obey you. Because you alone are wise, and you alone are good. And you are our good, good Father, Lord. We praise you for that. We thank you that you care about every one of our needs. You know what we need even before we ask you, yet you call us to ask because you you want us. You want to spend time with us. You want to impart to us your heart and your mind. Help us, Lord, to spend time with you daily and to allow you to fill us afresh every day by your Spirit, through your Word. That, Lord, we would be witnesses for you wherever we go and we'll leave the scent of Christ with those that we leave behind. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.